Part Nine Appendix of Ghosts and Family Legends, a volume for Christmas by Catherine Crow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Nine Appendix. I have referred in the preceding pages to the loss of several letters which I should have been glad to insert here. The following very interesting ones I have fortunately retained. I give them verbatim, only suppressing the names of the writers as requested. Letter one, August eighteenth, eighteen fifty four. Madam, I have received your kind favor of the fifteenth, and I really feel that I must now apologize to you for venturing so quickly to call in question the accuracy of your details. Being unaware, however, of the marvelous coincidence of the two dreams, I feel assured you at once appreciated the motives which alone impelled me to write. Allow me, then, to attempt a narration of the particulars referred to in my last as having come under my own observation. Two intimate friends of mine, clergymen of the Church of England, and one of whom is unmarried, have for the last three years occupied a large old-fashioned house in the country. It is a very pretty place, stands within its own grounds, and is quite aloof from any other dwellings. It has long had the reputation in the neighborhood of being haunted, in consequence, it is said, of a former proprietor having committed suicide there. The story goes thus. He was laid out in a chamber which is now called the spare room, and is the scene of what I am about to relate. I may as well tell you that it was only on my last visit, some six weeks since, that I became at all aware of the character of the mansion, for my friends felt so annoyed at what has taken place that they purposely avoided communicating to their visitors what they thought might make them anything but comfortable. On that occasion there happened to be on a visit to my friend's wife a lady very nearly related to him. She had the spare room assigned to her as a chamber, and on the very first night of her arrival was so terrified by what took place that she would not again sleep there without company. She stated that in the middle of the night she was alarmed by the most unearthly groanings and lamentations. The voice seemed close to her bedside. It was afterwards attended by a rustling noise, and she distinctly felt the curtain at the foot of the bed removed. Now, as my knowledge of what was going on could not be disputed, my friends admitted that it was not the first time these noises had been heard, nay, that in two instances the apparition of a form in grave clothes had been seen, the one occurring to a young gentleman of about twenty years of age, who happened to be visiting them, and the other to one of their own servants. In the former case it appears that the young man was sitting rather late at night in the study reading, all the family being in bed, when the form appeared, apparently from the wall dividing the study from the haunted chamber. It remained a short time only, and then melted away. So great was the young man's terror that he has never been near the place since. The servant also described a similar appearance, and no one in the house who saw her terror could believe it acted. Independently of all this, no less than four gentlemen, two of them from the university, have experienced all the unearthly groanings and bewailings before mentioned, and in nearly every instance the parties were, like myself, ignorant of the character attributed to the house. But I now come to my own experience. I was on a visit to my friends about twelve months since, when I met a gentleman who had just left the army for the church. 
He appeared about twenty-one years of age, and there was that indescribable something in his manner which charmed me immediately. Without any pretense to being set up, so to speak, in piety, there was yet that in his sunny countenance and air of cheerfulness which made you feel that he had been called to a brighter path of usefulness. I certainly very much admired him, and I have since learnt that he is a general favourite. On retiring to rest I found that he was to occupy the next room, not the study side. From a variety of causes I could not sleep, but the imaginative powers were not particularly aroused, my thoughts were of very prosy and worldly things. As near as I could recollect, about an hour after I had been in bed, I heard the most dreadful groans followed by exclamations of the most horrible kind. The voice certainly seemed in the room, and was continued for at least two hours, at intervals of about ten minutes. It was that of a man who had committed a deadly sin, which could never be pardoned. The agony seemed to me to be intense. Will you believe it, madam, in spite of what I thought of my acquaintance of the next chamber, I ascribed it to him. I believed little in the supernatural, and concluded it to be some dreadful dream. It is astonishing the thought never struck me that a continuous dream of such a character was scarcely possible. It did not, however, and despite of its unearthly character, and the apparent woe of the unfortunate one, the despair, as I said before, of a lost soul, I continued to associate it all with my neighbor next door, until the events which occurred at my last visit entirely upset my conviction, and I became at once assured I had been doing him a great injustice. Like some of the cases in the night side of nature, you will perceive here a great difference in the manifestations. To some it was given to hear, to others to see. Are you still of opinion that this results from what you term comparative freedom of rapport? Do you not think there are times when the material may give place to the supernatural? I admit freely the truth of spectral illusions. I have myself experienced one, but knew it to be nothing more. Still notwithstanding this, and my further belief in a certain connection of mind and matter, I cannot altogether cast from me the persuasion that the Almighty One may at times think fit to exercise a power independent of all rule for the attainment of certain ends to us, perhaps unknown. I cannot conclude without telling you that, with regard to what I have mentioned above, nothing in the shape of trick could possibly have been practiced. Trusting I may not have trespassed too much on your patience, I will now remain, Madam, yours very respectfully, J. H. H. Letter 2. Gloucestershire, June 10, 1854. Madam, being not long ago on a visit of some days at the house of a friend, I happened to meet with your work entitled The Night Side of Nature. The title struck my imagination, and opening the book I was delighted to find that it treated of subjects which had long engaged my serious thoughts. I was much pleased to see in you such an able and earnest protester against the cold skepticism of the age in reference to truths of the highest orders, and those, too, sustained by a body of evidence which in any other case would be esteemed irresistible. I must also say that I never met with so great a number of well-authenticated facts in any other work as you have given us, 
whilst the truly catholic spirit of your theological reflections was to me peculiarly refreshing i once had a thought of making a similar collection that design i have however abandoned the state of my health not admitting of much literary labour i could relate to you many things as remarkable as any you have described for the truth of which i can vouch i will mention one of a most singular nature and should you be inclined to read anything more from me on these matters i shall feel a pleasure in the communication writing letters i find to be a relief from a melancholy induced some two years ago by a variety of heavy afflictions and this must be my apology for addressing you but to my narrative shortly after i entered the ministry i was introduced to a gentleman of very superior mind who belonged to the same profession and whom i had never seen equalled for the genius and eloquence which his conversation displayed i became at once attached to him and for some reason or other he evinced a desire to cultivate my friendship after some months of most agreeable intercourse had elapsed he was taken seriously ill and one evening i was hastily summoned to his house on my entering his chamber he requested that we might be left alone and he then told me that it was his impression that his disease was mortal that many supernatural occurrences had marked his life which he desired might be given to the world when he was gone and that he wished me to perform this office having expressed my willingness to gratify him he commenced the chapter of extraordinaries here is one event in his remarkable history prior to his becoming a minister and when in humble circumstances he lodged at the house of a tradesman at a certain seaport town of w he was then in perfect health one night he retired to rest in peculiarly good spirits and as his custom was for it was then summer he sat near the window and gazed for some time on the beauties of nature he then amused himself for a while by humming a tune when presently on looking towards the door he saw the figure of a man enter his dress was a blood-red nightcap flannel jacket and breeches the man approached the bed his countenance and walk indicating extreme illness threw himself upon it gave several groans and apparently expired my friend was so filled with horror that he lost all power of speech and motion and remained fixed on his seat till morning when he told his landlord the occurrence of the night and declared that unless they could find him other apartments he would leave them that very day the honest people were disinclined to part with him and agreed to accommodate him on the ground floor about twelve months after this he went out on a market-day for the purpose of purchasing some provisions and when he returned he heard that his old room was taken but what was his surprise to find in the new lodger the very form with the very same dress that had so terrified him a year before the man was then very ill he died in a few weeks and the circumstances were without any exception the same as those which my friend had witnessed this is one of those cases in which it is extremely difficult to ascertain the design of the appearance i should much like to know what conjecture you would form as to the modus and the end of such a singular incident of the veracity of the narrator it was impossible for me to doubt as this minister is still living i am not at liberty to mention his name 
pray excuse the freedom of thus addressing you, and believe me to be, madam, with every sentiment of respect and esteem, yours very truly, R.I.O. Mrs. C. Crow. Letter 3. Gloucestershire, June 21, 1854. Madam, as I find that another communication will not be unacceptable, I proceed to detail a few cases. My first relates to the minister, a part of whose history I have given you, and belongs to the class of prophetic dreams. When he had resolved to study for the ministry, and through the influence of friends, had obtained admission to a dissenting college, as the day affixed for his departure drew near, he was filled with anxiety from the fact that he had not even money to pay his travelling expenses. He did not like to borrow, and he had no reason to conclude that any one suspected the miserable state of his finances. The evening before his expected removal he laid down to rest with a troubled heart. This was in the very same seaport where the circumstance happened which I have already told you. After some hours of great mental suffering, sleep came to his relief, and in his dream there seemed to approach him one of a most pleasing form, who told him that he not only saw that he was in distress, but that he well knew the cause of it, and that if he would walk down on the beach to a certain place which he pointed out as in a picture, he would find under some loose stones enough for his present necessities. In the morning, accordingly, almost as soon as it was light, he hastened to the indicated spot, and to his great surprise and delight found a sum amounting to a trifle more than was absolutely necessary for his journey. I would just, in passing, remark that he said that on another occasion his father, who died many years before, appeared to him with an angry countenance, and assured him that he would suffer much from something he had done in reference to his family, but as this was evidently an unpleasant and even painful topic, I did not wish him to enlarge upon it. The other fact I shall mention happened to my grandfather, who was also a minister. I am well aware that it is of such a nature that the relation of it would in most companies excite a burst of laughter, or at least a contemptuous and skeptical smile, but I know I am addressing one who has studied in a very different school of philosophy. It was in the large town of B, where my grandfather resided for many years, that the event took place. He himself, my grandfather, my aunts, and my mother used often to tell it to their friends when the conversation turned on the supernatural. I have probably heard it a hundred times, and I am not ashamed to say that on the testimony of such a man as my grandfather I cannot but yield to it my belief. One morning, when breakfast had just commenced, my grandfather went from the table, at which my grandmother also was sitting, into the passage, for what purpose I have now forgotten, and there he found, for the front door had been standing open, a strange-looking man in black, with a shuffling gait and a club foot. He declared that he had an instantaneous conviction that this was a supernatural appearance, and that a spirit of evil stood before him. The man in black exclaimed, moving towards the breakfast-room, I am come to take breakfast with you this morning. My grandfather, convulsively seizing the handle of the door, said with a stern look, You are too late, sir, to which the other instantly replied, I am not too late for the remnant, and then rushed into the street. 
My grandfather followed, and to his amazement saw this creature at the top of the street, which was of great length, and in a moment or two he vanished. My grandmother heard a loud talking, and when my grandfather returned to the table, in considerable agitation, she naturally wished to know what had occurred. But as she was near her confinement, he, of course, concealed the matter from her. The mysterious words of the stranger followed him continually, and he puzzled himself in seeking to explain their meaning. In a few days my grandmother was confined. The child was dead-born, and her life for some time hung in jeopardy. He now believed he had arrived at the solution of the difficulty. The infant was the remnant referred to. I am not the subject of remarkable dreams. I had one, however, lately, and I give it to you, because it stands connected in my mind with the knowledge of a singular psychical event which I am confident will greatly interest you if you have not yet fallen upon it in the course of your reading. About a fortnight ago I thought I saw in my sleep a young man, who is assistant to our principal surgeon, come into my room looking exceedingly unwell. He laid himself on the other bed in my chamber, and I thought that he had come there to linger out his last illness, at which I felt not the least surprise or objection. He seemed to be perfectly resigned, and presently he began to converse with me, and after we had talked for some time, whilst he was replying to something I had said, I distinctly saw his spirit rise up out of his body. He gazed at the corpse with the deepest interest and pleasure. One moment he would stand by the head and survey the face, and the next move to the feet and then gaze at the entire body. He called me to come and stand by his side and view this lifeless frame, which I did with as much placidity as he himself seemed to possess, and without the slightest idea of there being anything absurd in what I saw. I could not, however, help saying, Oh, that I could leave my body and have such a view of it as you have now of yours. I remember no more. In the morning I had occasion to call on a friend who has a large library containing many rare books. Not being in the humor for close reading, for I spend many hours at a time there, I took up from a center table a volume of a lighter kind. It happened to be Mrs. Child's Letters from New York. Turning the leaves over carelessly, my eye lighted on a chapter headed, The Spirit Surveying Its Own Body. She there says that she was told by a pious lady that when once in a swoon she felt that she left the body and was standing by it during the whole time it lasted, that she distinctly heard every word spoken by the doctor and her family, and saw every movement of their countenances, and all that was done with her body. I may observe that I have not heard that anything has occurred to the young man I saw. If I have not already tired your patience, you may draw on my memory for something more. A line to that effect will oblige. Yours very truly, R.I.O. Mrs. C. Crow. Letter 4. Edinburgh, August 10th. Madam, in consequence of a long absence abroad, I never had, till recently, an opportunity of reading your agreeable work, The Night Side of Nature, which contains a mass of evidence in favor of your theories, to which I take the liberty of adding a few cases from my own experience. Many years ago I lived in a house in Edinburgh, which belonged to my mother's relatives, and in which my maternal grandfather had died, several years antecedent to my own birth.
The room in which I slept was that, but at the time unknown to me, in which my relative had expired. There were two beds in the room, one a large four-poster and the other a sort of couch. The latter was next the door, and both lay between it and the window, which was barred and bolted, and opposite to them was the fireplace, with rather a high mantelpiece. Being summer, the board was on the chimney. It was about eleven o'clock at night. The rest of the family had retired to rest. As there were only about two inches of candle left, I placed the candlestick on the mantelpiece, intending to allow it to burn out, and went to my bed, which was on the couch. I had just lain down and was looking towards the candle, when to my extreme horror I perceived a tall old man in his nightdress standing by the mantelpiece. His sight seemed impaired, for he put forth his hand and felt for something, and then moved across the fireplace, in doing which he obscured the light on passing it. My gaze was riveted on him. He then turned towards the large bed on my left, and stretching out his hands attempted with a feeble effort to lay himself down, and in doing so I heard him sigh distinctly. He disappeared almost at the same moment. He did not appear to have noticed me. I immediately sprang out of bed, and opening the door on my right hand, called out loudly, but never left the doorway, as I was resolved that if the figure were that of a living person there should be no means of egress. On the assembling of the family in my room a search was made, but there was nothing to be seen, and there had been no possibility of a human being having been in the room. The affair was put down to an illusion, yet so strong an impression did it leave on my mind that a few years since, 1851 or 52, when in India I published in Saunders magazine, printed at the Delhi Gazette Press, an account of this apparition in a narrative which I wrote called Idone, or Incidents in the Life of a Dreamer, and which, with the exception of this introductory vision, was in reality a series of actual dreams of which I had kept a record, and this I endeavored to weave into a vague story with the view of illustrating how a person might live two distinct lives. Some time after the above were published, I read with much interest Swedenborg's theory of the spiritual world, and lately, when reading your work, I was struck with some peculiar resemblances between my own experience and the cases you cite. But to return to the family and house in Edinburgh of my grandfather, other members of the family have been unaccountable figures in the same house. An aunt of mine and a cousin one night met an old woman on the stairs with a large bunch of keys and were in the greatest alarm. On another occasion, on going to open a room which had been locked up for some time in order to prepare it for the reception of my eldest uncle, who had just returned that night from abroad, two members of the family started back and locked the door again, for on entering they had both seen the mattress and so forth violently heaved up. On returning with the servants, nothing was visible of an unusual description. Again, two relatives occupied the same room, and one night, as the fire was burning low, after they had gone to bed, the door being locked, they were alarmed by a sound like wings over their beds, and by a dusky form moving about the room. It walked up to the fireplace and seemed restless. When it had disappeared, they both rose and unlocked the door, called for assistance. 
but, as usual, nothing of their visitor was to be seen. A still more remarkable incident occurred in the same house. As two of my aunts were sitting opposite the window at night, they were startled by the apparition of an absent brother-in-law looking in, and with a pen in his hand. A few days afterwards the intelligence of his death arrived. He had been signing his will at the exact time they had seen his apparition. My eldest uncle, shortly after his return from abroad, went to Musselboro to visit an old schoolmaster, and as he entered the yard he observed him limping into the school. He tried to overtake him, and on reaching the door he met one of the tutors, who informed him that the doctor had been confined to his bed for some time with a broken leg. The same uncle, who was an officer in the army, dreamt that he had obtained his captaincy by the retirement of an officer of the name of Patterson, so far as I remember. There was no such officer then in the regiment, and he mentioned it as strange that he should have dreamt of a particular name. A few gazettes afterwards my uncle obtained his promotion by an officer of this name being brought in from the half-pay to sell out in the same gazette. I have myself heard the most remarkable and unaccountable noises in my grandfather's house. The servants were often in the greatest terror. I have heard, seemingly, the whole of the furniture in a particular room thrown violently about, accompanied with the noise of something rolling on the floor. At other times I have distinctly heard, as it were, a boy's marble falling step by step down the stairs and striking against my door which was at the foot of them, and yet this was at night, and there were no children in the house. This annoyance, with that of steps heard round my bed, was so common as to cease to make any impression on me. I may mention that my grandfather was not happy in his family relations, and died in an uneasy frame of mind on Christmas Eve, 1820. Since my family sold his house, I have never heard that its new occupants were disturbed. I have at different periods of my life had groups, as it were, of very remarkable allegorical dreams. It is somewhat singular that involuntary efforts may be made during sleep, which are, I believe, beyond the bounds of possibility during waking moments. Indeed, the curious phenomena which you have so ably criticized are without limit. Though you do not approve of the concealment of names, I hope you will excuse my asking you to do so in the present instance, as many of the parties concerned might be displeased. I have the honor to remain, madam, your obedient servant, H. A., Mrs. Catherine Crow. P.S. I know two remarkable instances of prophetic denunciation, or the power of will, under, of course, the control of providence. In one instance the death of the party denounced followed on the week predicted, although at the time he was well. Moreover, the denunciation was never mentioned to him. In the other instance, the accomplishment of the denunciation was accomplished to the exact day and under very remarkable circumstances. I believe this power to be involuntary and more of the nature of inspiration. End of Part 9 The Appendix